0: This episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by HBO. Finalists for the 2020 HBO APA Visionary Short Film Competition have been announced. HBO Visionaries is celebrating its fourth class of emerging Asian and Pacific Islander American filmmakers. And all three Visionary 2020 shorts will be available to air live starting Tuesday, September 29th on HBO and available to stream on HBO Max. Find out more information about the program and official rules on www.hbovisionaries.com and keep an eye out for the opening of submissions for the 2021 competition and the opportunity to have your short film considered for HBO and HBO Max in 2021. And now the show.
1: You're listening to... Whoa! Whoa. Hot luck. Hot luck.
0: Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Mark And
1: I'm Rira Yu.
0: And we are here today to talk about our September 2020 book club pick, Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. Rira, we yes. made it to the end of another month.
1: Why does that feel like an accomplishment every single time? <laughs> it
0: <laughs> really shouldn't be. I mean, um, these past few months have been pretty tough for everybody, but I feel like September has been especially tough because of um just so many things happening. Just Yeah, like, I guess so. Like the sheer magnitude of things happening. But uh I'm oh, glad the thing we're... that
1: happened yesterday, for example. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um but yeah, it's finally October. We are now starting our fourth year as a book club.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> That uh, is almost half a decade. How is that possible?
0: (laughs) Through sheer will and perseverance, uh, Rira, just want to say congratulations on making this milestone. Um, I'm glad to be on the journey with you.
1: Thank you. Speaking of milestones, uh, we finally opened an online bookshop for y'all. Um we are na- we are now an affiliate for bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. As an affiliate, we will get a 10% commission on every sale, which gives a matching 10% to independent bookstores everywhere and uh, bookshop.org gives away 75% of their profit to independent bookstores and authors and this has been really crucial uh, especially during a time of self isolation and covid i know a lot of independent bookstores have been using bookshop.org and uh, that's uh, that's been like a main way for them to keep their business open so um our bookshop.org URL is bookshop.org slash shop slash books hyphen and hyphen boba. And when you land on our page, you'll see a bunch of books that we've read for book club, as well as uh, other books by Asian authors. Uh, we have categories for uh, Asian inspired fantasies, coming of age, picture books, So I hope you guys check it out because obviously on this podcast, we can't cover every single book. So I'm going to try and update our bookshop by including a lot of the new releases that come out.
0: Yeah. So if you're looking for a book that we mentioned on this podcast or uh, just want to check out books by Asian and Asian American authors and you want to help support our podcast, um, please check it out. Yeah. Uh, Rira, what's the link again? It is
1: bookshop.org slash shop slash books hyphen and hyphen boba uh we'll add the link to our um, show notes and i'll also tweet and uh, add the link on our instagram
0: yeah so now with that out of the way it's time for us to discuss our september 2020 book club pick
1: and we're going to start off with the jacket description Poet and essayist Kathy Park Hong blends memoir, cultural criticism, and history to expose the truth of racialized consciousness in America. Binding these essays together is Hong's theory of minor feelings. As the daughter of Korean immigrants, Kathy Park Hong grew up steeped in shame, suspicion, and melancholy. She would later understand that these minor feelings occur when American optimism contradicts your own reality. When you believe the lies you're told about your own racial identity, Hong uses her own story as a portal into a deeper examination of racial consciousness in America today. This book traces her relationship to the English language, to shame and depression, to poetry and art making, and to family and female friendships in a search to both uncover and speak the truth.
0: So this is our second memoir/ um, slash essay collection that we've read this year, um, if we include um, Maxine Honkingston's Woman Warrior. And it's similar in a lot of ways, but also different, right? Because this one, instead of using folktales as the medium, it uses more, it's more of like a straight up memoir, right?
1: I don't know if it's a straight up memoir. I I think it's accurate to say it's an essay collection uh, because a lot of her essays aren't. Um, obviously, she does bring up her own personal experiences, Um, to help supplement her theories on um, racial consciousness in the Asian American community. But a lot of it is pretty scholarly. She, you know, cites a lot of other essays and other artists and um, a lot of history is in this book as well. Yeah. So I I don't know, like when I I found this book, it was in the biography section of (laughs) the bookstore. And I was like, huh? Like, I thought this was going to be in the essay, like the essay section, but okay. Um, So it's definitely a book that blends a lot of different genres.
0: Yeah. I mean, when this book came out, everyone was talking about it, how like, how they were in their fields and really related to it,
1: a lot of people in our Goodreads were uh, pretty excited that we were picking this book up for for this episode. Um, a lot of people had already read it. Uh, people on our Instagram they were saying that this is the best book of 2020, and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> clearly our book club members are you know they they love it. So hopefully, I won't disappoint them by by thinking that this is a bad book and. I mean, surely like it wasn't yeah it was it's a not a bad
0: book. book i think for me um as someone who has taken asian american studies asian american literature um and has been steeped in the community and the discussion of representation for the last like decade or so while it was well written um i think a lot of the parts that people really resonated were the parts where kathy does go into more like scholarly discussions of like representation of history of like Things that you don't really learn in the mainstream history that I kind of already knew. So I think the parts that really drew me or were more interesting to me were the parts that were more personal. Like those personal stories.
1: By personal, do you mean the latter half of the book where she talks about like college and art making?
0: Yeah, those parts. Or where she talks about her family or just her personal experiences. Um, Because it's interesting because... As someone who has worked with Asian American communities across the nation, not only in L.A., but also in places like Texas, like D.C., like New York, there's this like collective unconscious that's local to every Asian American community that's at a different level of development. Right. Like I think for a lot of people, they have their Asian American awakening in college when they finally are at a place where they can find themselves surrounded by people that look like them or find other people with their experiences. Um, I think. For myself, that happened a little bit earlier because I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. Um, growing up, my high school was always at least 40 to 60% Asian. Uh, so um, being Asian wasn't something that put us apart. I think for myself, it was more, um, okay, like I have no problem being Asian in America. But my problem is how Asian should I be, right? Oh, um,
1: yeah, yeah, I get it. You know? Yeah
0: you know, that those minor feelings still occur.
1: Yeah. Um, Like you said, um, a lot of people have their Asian American reckoning in college. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that you're removed from your hometown. So a lot of the, um, and you know, like your hometown can be a bubble and you grow up there, uh, pretty much like thinking that everyone has the same thought pattern everybody has the same prejudice or um to in order to survive you have to blend in so like when you're in college you're kind of removed you're removed from that environment and you have the ability to really explore outside the typical um mindsets about race uh that you grew up in um for me because I am Korean American, I did relate a lot to what uh, Kathy wrote in the book. Even though, even though she's a generation ahead of me, obviously um, our experiences are going to be very different. And also, I wasn't born here. I came here when I was three years old, and um, and in, in terms of class, my my parents—they're not working class so very different experience and i like how she mentioned the history of asian asian american the the, the term because i feel like a lot of people don't know about that but you and Ma- but uh marvin and i because we've been part of like the asian american arts community for so long um a lot of the a lot of the historical facts we already knew about But uh, I'm really glad that she put that there and kind of and, you know, mentions that Asian America is like this really heavy term that doesn't cover everyone. It's this tenuous alliance because it's not going to encompass South Asian, Southeast Asians, religion, like Muslims, like our demographic is so wide, but it was a term that activists came up with uh, at UC Berkeley because they wanted um, because they were inspired by the civil rights movement and because they wanted to create an identity that can oppose structural inequality. But now we're at a point where um, the now we're at a point where like East Asians, we have higher paying jobs, but then South Asians (laughs) like like southeast asians not so much there is a lot of division and um i i feel like a lot of people don't know the history behind it
0: i mean yeah asian american has become kind of a catch-all and it's become an identity that people that a lot of people claim but what gets lost in the current discourse sometimes is the fact that asian american isn't it's not a cultural term right there's not a culture out there that's asian american that's a clearly definable um asian american is a political term it was created to consolidate power and create like a like a coalition of different um, communities to be able to have like a stronger voice in things like civil rights i think a great companion piece to kathy's book would be the pbs docu-series asian americans because it like kathy's book it goes into the history of asians in america that gets glossed over in a lot of our, um, our history books, right? Things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, things like um, Japanese Interment, where if you don't seek out that information, it's at most what like a section in a in your history books, right? It's like maybe a page, maybe a couple pages.
1: Not my history textbook. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely not in high school. We we didn't really cover it. Um, I've mentioned it in our in our episode for The Sympathizer by Viet Tan Nguyen that when we covered the Vietnam War it was only on like the American perspective like we didn't we didn't even touch on Vietnamese uh, refugees I never met like a Vietnamese person until college um and I uh, like if I had this book when I was younger when I was still in high school I feel like it would have been a revel like, a revelation to me. Mm -hmm. But as someone who, you know, like, as someone who has been part of, like, this Asian-American community where we are advocates for a lot of um, social justice movements, uh, a lot of this was familiar territory, but that doesn't mean that for our book club members, this wasn't as, like, this was as familiar. Um, I know that we have non-Asian, um, book club members and for them they have said that this like they would have never discovered this book without us uh that they have read anti-racist books by black authors but they haven't really read a book about race and how it is broken down from an asian american perspective um so it makes it does make me question like who is the core audience for this book because obviously we have personal connections to it because of our shared immigrant experience, but a lot of it is, uh, is a form of education.
0: I mean this book is for Asian Americans, I think foremost, right? Like it's yeah, foremost. Because in terms of representation, we've seen the power of what it means to like, see your, your own experiences reflected on whether it's a screen stage or a page. Um, What kind of power that has. And the simple fact that like, and this is like totally unscientific, but probably a great majority, like maybe even up to like 90 percent of all Asians in America have never taken an Asian American studies course. Uh, Including
1: me. I have never taken an Asian (laughs) American studies course. (laughs) I mean, I
0: think there are only like less than 100 institutions that even have Asian American studies as like its own discrete um, discipline. Um, within ethnic studies or social sciences right so um access to this information is really hard especially if you're in a place where like asians just aren't represented at all you know if if you're one of those people who were one of the only few asians in your school or um like things like that psychologically force you to not only not think about this stuff but also not um, seek it out right and maybe it's different these days because of the internet because connections are more easily made digitally but for the majority of people reading this book a lot of this stuff if they haven't taken any courses before or done any of their independent research a lot of this stuff is probably new
1: yeah I'm when I picked up this book I was wondering what minor feelings meant Mm. like I knew I knew it was like okay it's the feeling that um the minority of this country feels the marginalized uh um community feels but the way that Kathy Park Hong uh defined it it like it it resonated with me um you know, giving a name to something is very powerful. Yeah. Um. And the fact that she was like minor feelings—it's the shame and anxiety and suspicion when you feel when the majority gaslights you. <laughs> uh, it, it's when white people say Asians are so successful and that they're the model minority, and when you don't meet that standard, you don't f- when you don't fit that narrative, you f- feel that shame. Um. And just like knowing all of the subtle racism, all of the microaggressions and being anxious about that all the time, that is minor feeling. And yeah, yeah, like, I had highlighted a whole bunch of quotes uh, from just like that one essay. I think it was the first essay uh, where she just dives into, uh, it dives into like what the microaggressions that Asian Americans are feeling internally all the time and how like what what our status is in the capitalist white supremacist hierarchy of this country. <laughs> and just like how we like how we are quote unquote next in line to be white and how that is not true and how that is really harmful. Um Yeah.
0: I mean yeah. I think going back to your question of who is this for, um, I think while Kathy does a good job of like describing how Asian Americans isn't a monolith, and there's a whole breadth of what our experiences are. I think minor feelings, in particular, feels like a you not uh, feels like something that is afflicting. I think more often East Asians, right? Like those of us who are in the privileged sect of this, like this demographic, Um, those of us who are in the middle upper, like. In the, those of us who are, who are like middle class Asians tend to be statistically, right? More likely to be East Asian, like Chinese, uh, Chinese, Korean, Japanese. Um, And a lot of that has to do with, like Kathy mentioned, immigration patterns, right? That's something that you don't really think about in terms of like, in terms of why communities are the way they are, right? Like the minor, the model minority myth is a direct symptom of the brain drain like immigration policy of the 60s and 70s where america was taking in a lot of skilled workers like doctors engineers scientists and because of that that's because of that um and because of that the general education level of the asian american demographic like went up you know It wasn't that miraculously, it wasn't that, oh, Asians are just so good at studying and so good at school and so good at math and science. It's just we were bringing in exclusively Asians that were good at math and science.
1: Yeah, it's like that myth of anybody can come to America and if they work hard enough, they can become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not correct because the people who came over here were already doctors, engineers, and lawyers. They didn't, of course, they had to work hard to, um, of course they had to work hard to beat a lot of uh prejudice to be able to attain that success but they but the foundation was already there.
0: Yeah, it doesn't take into account all the people that were here not by choice. You know. And there's a whole subset of Asian Americans who were here because of like um uh, not because they were looking for places to Um, be scientists or be engineers. You know, Um, the original Chinese workers were here because they needed to support their families. And they were here because the, um, the rail tycoons needed cheap labor to replace, you know, slave labor. Right. Um, The Vietnamese, Hmong, Lao communities here are here, are, are here in America because they were displaced by war um, by like their country falling because of American imperialism. Right. So, Um, I think she does a good job explaining these things, especially if those are concepts that you haven't thought about before.
1: Or if it's concepts that you know about, but, you know, like Kathy puts it in such articulate, like in an articulate form. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I really like the fact that she brought up, um, uh, brought up like American gratitude, you know, like Mm -hmm. America wants us to be grateful for living here. Um, They always say, like, aren't you lucky that you were able to escape your country to work in the best country and to have all of these opportunities? And um, and they don't realize that the reason why people have immigrated into this country, largely it's because of their imperialism. Um, It's because they came to our country um, and just kind of build a lot of violence and really fucked us up um (laughs) and and as a korean american um we like korea has a korea has a very close relationship with america south korea because uh american soldiers as well as uh armies from all around the world they they helped us win um not win but they they helped us uh, they helped us form our our country from f- from the very beginning after after the division happened.
0: Right, that arbitrary division of North and South Korea.
1: Yes, <laughs> and you know there there is a form of gratitude from the older generation, um, and a lot of Korean like a lot of Koreans immigrated to America because um, Korea was a third world country at that point and education was the only way to better the economy at a faster rate so to tell korean americans that you know like they should be grateful for coming here it's like well we had a war in our country and <laughs> and you kind of came here and kind uh, and kind of made things a little bit more not a little bit more. I, I don't know where I'm going with this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's that quote, we're here, we we are here because you were there, right? And Oh, yeah. Immigration is good for like the movement of people, the exchanging of cultures, the potential of bringing people together. But at the same time, the reasons for that movement aren't always as noble or good, you know? And it's real dangerous for us to think about like, yeah, like it's good that we were able to come to this country especially if you came to this country because you lost your own. And you know as as a as a Chinese American I can't really relate to that as much. Um I'm sure I have some you know inherited trauma from my grandparents having to flee their country because of civil war. But in terms of like distance right I'm like two generations removed from that as opposed to a lot of the refugee families here who are like maybe not even one generation removed from that trauma.
1: Yeah so I was like wondering why this why the subtitle for this book was an Asian American reckoning um because because in my head i was like who is the one that needs that reckoning and i think for for me that answer is asian americans because there's a lot of asian americans in this country who aren't aware of their privilege and aren't aware of like where they stand in uh, um in like the whole white supremacy hierarchy because we do perpetuate uh Racism and the structural oppression that uh, Black and Brown people feel in this country, particularly East Asian Americans, and I really like this quote that um, that Kathy had in her book. When I hear the phrase "Asians are next in line to be white," I replace the word "white" with "disappear." Asians are next in line to disappear. We are we are reputed to be so accomplished and so law so law abiding. We will disappear into this country's amnesiac fog. We will not be the power, but become absorbed by power. Not share the power of whites, but be stooges to a white ideology that exploited our ancestors.
0: That's the. I think a good analog of that would be like our current political situation, right? A lot of people are saying, like, okay, uh, it's a do or die decision this election, and we have to do all we can to win. But the fear is like, say, you know, Cheeto Man is defeated, there's probably going to be a lot of people, probably the majority of people who are super fired up right now, who will decide, okay, we've won. It's now time to go back to being disengaged. I think Kathy's point here is a lot of Asian Americans. have bought into the um the game that american capitalism has like kind of set up for us bought into yeah like the way to win is to be as close to what the white people do as possible and if we can achieve something close to that like if we can achieve that like second class status we have won there's nothing else. that's like the ultimate achievement of Asians in america and I the way that Kathy portrays that as like the big lie of how Americans treat Asians is powerful to realize, right? Like Because it's something you don't think about because whether by coincidence or serendipity, the way that America sets up people to succeed in capitalism aligns pretty well with like traditional East Asian values of being a part of a collective whether that was on purpose or just by accident, it leads us to kind of believe those lies, right? It leads our parents to believe those lies. And a lot of it comes down to just fear of being singled out, right? Fear of being in danger again. Um, I think there is a lot of trauma for those of us who come from Asia, which is a region that relatively peaceful now, but in the early parts of the century during our parents or grandparents' time was like constantly at war. So, You know, it's no wonder that facing the decision between a unstable, chaotic environment and a more stable and safer, albeit less free environment, a lot of people would choose to be safe.
1: Yeah, and we can see that from the 2016 election. Um, A lot of older Asian uh, American immigrants, they voted for Trump. And um, the people who thought that their race had no bearing on their lives because they're successful because they've quote unquote made it um i think covid has really been a wake-up call for them uh saying that you are you are model minority until you're not and that privilege can be taken away at any moment and i hope
0: that you know kathy mentions how like the term woke has gone out of vogue recently but
1: Oh my God, that white tears uh, <laughs> section of that essay was fantastic. We'll we'll move into that later, but yeah, yeah. go right ahead.
0: But like my personal fear is if like we do quote unquote win the election, that people don't just go back to sleep, you know, because we've gotten back to the status quo. Um, because the status quo was not necessarily good for us, you know? And I hope that... Our readers, having read this book, especially if you are Asian American, have the context now to realize what needs to be done to move not only our own communities forward, not only our own families and our own lives, but also our country forward in being the place that it sells itself to be uh, because it's not there right now and it hasn't been there ever because um, I think Kathy, in like her historical lecture sections of the book, makes it very clear that America didn't suddenly become racist. Americans didn't suddenly become like, you know, have these microaggressions or have these like, have these racist institutions. It was always this way. You know, we just didn't see it or we couldn't see it because we were part of that system.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. It's not like America was ever great to begin with. (laughs) It's it's a myth that, you know, you... Hmm, trying to, trying to, where am I going with this? Um, actually, uh, one of our book club members in her review, she says, uh, when American soldiers invaded Korea during the war, Koreans would point to them and say, gook, American. The soldiers translated their words into English, me gook. They thought Koreans were calling themselves uh, gooks, and that is how gook became a slur for Koreans, Vietnamese, and other vaguely East Asian-looking individuals. But mi gook, translated, means beautiful country. And I think it just shows, like, um, I don't know, it, it it just shows that America has always been racist, and no matter how much credit you can give to this country for opportunities um, it it will always betray you. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm being a little bit too cynical, but um,
0: yeah, I mean I think part of what Kathy does really well in this book is lift the veil on a lot of things that a lot of Asian Americans take for granted, right like w- a lot of Asian Americans buy into the mono minority myth, Because it's comfortable there, right? You're you're safer from ostracization. You're still othered.
1: Yeah, and I think Kathy does a really good job, um, like explaining a lot of the anti-blackness in the Asian American community and how that, you know, how that started and how we are considered not a minority. We lack presence and. Uh, We're just in this weird limbo of, like, the racial minority community. Um, She writes that we are uh, distrusted by Blacks, ignored by Whites, unless we're being used by them to keep the Black man down. And um, it's that is completely true. And I'm really glad that she brought um, a lot of, like, the la riots uh history because obviously i I feel like a lot of la people know about it but uh, as someone who came from the the south and the east coast that's something that i (laughs) never heard about
0: i mean i don't even know if la people really know about it and they know that it happened they know that south central and k-town was looted they know about the rooftop koreans and like the general mayhem but and i think people know that it was because of the rodney king verdict But I don't think they understand why it happened. Like the parallels to of that riot to the current protests and the fact that that the anger had no place to go. So it was filtered into literally the Korean community as like the closest thing that they can take their 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 frustrations out on. And I think Kathy does a good job exploring that through the film Sae Gu by um, I think her name is Debbie Kim Gibson. Um, which is a film that I actually watched in college. Um, so I was um pleasantly surprised that it was cited in her her essay. Um the film Sa'ai Gu is actually available on YouTube in its entirety. It's like a pretty it's like a relatively short documentary um about the LA riots, but but through the perspectives of Korean women, um, including the mother of the the one um Korean guy that was killed during the riots.
1: I also like um, this might be like a tangent, but I also really like that she mentioned the Latinx community and their loss during the 1992 uh, riots, uh, because a lot of people don't know that like a lot of like most of the yeah. businesses that got burned down was from the Latinx community uh, because they didn't fit neatly into this Asian versus Black uh, animosity narrative. They were left out.
0: Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that was perpetuated by the media, right? The media portrayed it as like, oh yeah, it's it's a conflict between Black and Korean, like totally exonerating the white community <laughs> from any wrongdoing. The narrative was like, oh, it's frustration of like the Koreans coming in and taking over businesses in, in South Central, right? And like not treating um, the Black community well, which is something that... I I personally hear from a lot of people who talk about the LA riots as like, oh, it's be- it was because Korean people were mean to black people and they got frustrated. And I think that's like, that's a very high level, like half truth, because as Kathy mentioned, there were plenty of Korean store owners who were part of the community. But because that didn't fit the narrative that, you know, made it more comfortable for white people, um, it was omitted. They portray it as, oh, this is a extension of like the tensions that started with the killing of Latasha Harlands um by a Korean um shop owner blowing over uh with the match being the Rodney King verdict. And this was like an inevitable conflict between these two communities. Um where the truth is, and this is something that if you watch Saegu, like they illustrate pretty well the reason K-town burned was because the police were protecting Beverly Hills, which is like a little bit north of K-Town. Like
1: all of them too. Yeah. And like they didn't dispense any police officers in, into K-Town. Yeah. Where most of the <laughs> violence was too. It's just like, where were you? Like, where yeah. were you? It's your job.
0: And then there's actual footage of like a police line defending the perimeter of Beverly Hills um, where nothing was really happening because the violence was filtered into Koreatown.
1: And like, I also really like the fact that Kathy, uh, she says this. Like, uh, sorry. And Kathy writes that racism isn't a competitive sport. And I think for a lot of Asian Americans, you know, we like we know that we know that our experience isn't the same as blacks and Latinx in this country. Uh, we aren't targeted as, as as black folks we you know we don't have to worry that much about police brutality and um a lot of other prejudice that black people face but that doesn't mean that the racism that we face isn't you know isn't significant um and i really like that she put that on on the page and uh, kind of acknowledged it kind of acknowledge like our own self policing in a way um our own self-loathing and self-monitoring yeah um yeah
0: um so we've talked a lot about the like the asian american studies aspects it's
1: inevitable for us to talk a lot about the asian american history part of it um considering like our own backgrounds but we should probably move on to other parts of the essays, like her the more personal parts with her college experience and uh uh her latter chapters about Teresa Hak Kyung Cha.
0: Yeah, I mean her first the first essay of this book is actually a pretty personal starts with a pretty personal anecdote about her trying to um find a therapist that under- understands her. And
1: Oh my god, that was like <laughs> like i I really felt that <laughs> <laughs> as someone who has depression and anxiety uh finding a therapist is already hard enough, and a lot of and and, and and you know like a lot of therapists are white because getting to be a therapist takes a lot of education, so it yeah, like the the immediate chung that she felt with the Korean American therapist chung is kind of like this instantaneous bond uh this connection that you feel with someb- someone and just like how she felt after she uh, and how she felt after the Korean American therapist rejected her um <laughs> it was funny but also very sad
0: yeah um i can imagine I can imagine the, you know, how, I can imagine how, like, I can imagine how bad that rejection would have felt because, you know, here is someone, it's like finding the one and realizing they're just not into you. And I think, like, personally, I can relate, like, I, I, I don't have a therapist, but I can relate to wanting to find someone who can understand you at, like, at least a baseline level. In terms of shared experience right and i think this is something that comes up again and again in this book is like the fact that just having a basic thing you can relate to is huge in a country where where it can be hard to find people with similar experiences you know she she mentions again later on when she mentions that oh people always want to talk about mothers with her right because that's like the one thing that asians can relate to is having like strict mothers i guess if if I was going to therapy, I don't want to spend half of the session that I'm paying for explaining the cultural nuances of my family and culture.
1: Yeah, but, uh, you know, she mentions like her friend who, you know, who is Asian and goes to see a Jewish therapist, that it was actually helpful for them to um, have someone who has no knowledge of their culture <laughs> Uh, and by dive, deep diving into their childhood and through their experience and like the cultural nuances, they're able to reflect better. And uh, for me, I don't I don't see a therapist uh, anymore, but uh, the therapist that I used to see was white. And um, and I feel like I had a similar experience where, you know, I didn't spend my first session just talking about what it means to grow up with Korean-American strict parents, um, uh, who were emotionally abusive and manipulative, and I didn't have to explain my culture, but, uh, when I did have to, it made me understand my parents from a more nuanced perspective and how that affected my childhood and my trauma. So, in a way um it could be helpful to have someone who doesn't share your background but it also really sucks when you have to explain to white people why you exist and why your trauma comes from generations of of of, of trauma of war and immigration yeah and i thought i thought her reaction to to like getting rejected and going to the website to like To pretty much rant saying like Korean Americans they shouldn't become therapists they all hate like they all have self loathing and I was like oh my god like I'm so glad that that review did not get posted on that site (laughs) for some reason it was I was just like oh my god (laughs) it's terrible
0: yeah I mean it happens right like it's easy to write off someone else because you think you understand them because of your shared culture right like oh yeah that that person is not good at following the rules because they're from this country i should know because my parents are from that country too and i think i don't know it, it was a really relatable sequence of like feeling hurt because here's someone you're, you're supposed to share a connection with totally shooting you down and i think um I, I commend kathy for like sharing that anecdote because i'm sure it was like i'm sure it wasn't easy to admit um your own like bias yeah your, your own, own bias and your yeah. own kind of like petty actions uh, when it comes to when it came to like how she reacted to this therapist telling her we're just not right for each other
1: i think it pairs really well with her anecdote about um how she was teaching in a class where there were three persian students and she mixed up one of one of them. And and her students like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm the other Persian. And I think that is like the opposite side of like her experience with the Korean American therapist, because a lot of the times it's either, oh, my God, there's another Asian kid in my class and we're going to be BFFs or and, and like the other side to that is like, oh, great, there's another Asian person in my class and we're going to be interchangeable and uh, people are going to think we like we're best friends, but we're from totally different backgrounds and experiences. So I thought that was an uh, like I like how she included those two anecdotes and uh, provided contrast uh to that, to that experience. Yeah. Um I also really like the fact that she uh when like towards the second half of her chapter she talks about her time in college and uh her journey to becoming a poet. And having this really strong female friendship with two other uh, Asian-American women uh, in her program.
0: Yeah. What did you think about that chapter where she talks about her um, her experiences in college?
1: What did I think? Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, for me, it reminded me of, yeah, like, when I was in college, the things that I was into with, like, the things that I did seemed like it mattered so much. And thinking back on it now, like, almost... Like eighteen to twenty years later, a lot of the stuff that I really really cared about, while important in my like growth as a human being, as as a person, seems so petty in comparison. And like the things that I really like got fired up about, I was like, why was I? Why did I care so much about that stuff? Why didn't I focus more on the things that actually mattered? like, the relationships or, like, enjoying my time rather, th- rather than caring about what people thought about this thing I did or these things that I was a part of, you know? Um, I think she did a really good job by capturing those, f- that feeling of of youth, right? Of, like, when you're in college, everything you did seemed like the most important thing in the world.
1: For me, uh, I don't know if it's because I studied writing in college, but I really related to Kathy's experience of do I write about race? Do I write about identity in my work? (laughs) Um, What if I, like, nothing I write is going to be separated from race. And I loved how she mentioned how, um, like, the... I love how she mentioned how she was never really sure about who her audience was, how... um, how she felt like she had to cater to a white audience. Like, even though her, like she said at one point that she was writing as if she was a white poet trying to imitate what an Asian poet should sound like. And <laughs> I thought that was really interesting and I could relate to that because um, I had one experience where I wrote a, I wrote a script for for a feature and i had pictured um i had pictured the main character as asian and i had made their last name lee but also i didn't want to make my main character um seem asian to the people who were reading it because i was afraid that it was it was going to get stereotyped and that the racial identity would be the thing that people people only see instead of the story And, um, you know, really like looking back on it, that's, that's really fucked up. I was, I was catering to, to a white audience when I should have been writing whatever the hell I wanted.
0: I mean, but that's, that's what minor feelings are, right? Like,
1: yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I felt, I, so I felt validated and, um, and just, and with her, with her relationship with the two Asian American uh, women at her college. Um I don't really see that many stories about um about Asian American women artists having friendships. I feel like a lot of the time Asian American women are pitted against each other. And um it's strange because you read about, you know, white male artists who are all friends, who are all part of I don't know, like they all they all studied art in Paris and they drank and they had this camaraderie, but you don't really hear that much about Asian American artists, particularly female artists.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that stuff definitely exists. You know, Kathy experienced it, but in terms of mainstream stories, it doesn't exist because people feel like there's no interest in it, right? Like it's... it's Like Kathy goes into this in her... um, I think it was her second essay where yeah like a lot of the stories that we see in literature in media re- involving asian americans are like market tested right there's a reason you only see certain narratives um portrayed by asian people and it's because um those are the ones that are deemed marketable and in the same way yeah like it's easier like it's easy for us to picture a movie about a, a group of dude artists like being in friendly competition with each other but if replace them, not, not even like Asian women, replace them with women. And all of a sudden, yeah. Like the expectation, the expectation is, Oh, they're all going to be jealous of each other.
1: And if you add ethnicity to it, it's, there can only be one. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs>
0: um, But I do, I did enjoy like the conclusion of that essay, the one about her college experience where she was saying, yeah, like when we were in college, like our relationship and rival- rivalry with each other was like, the most important thing, and we felt like we were all like doing great stuff um and how that like that prepared them to be women in the arts industry where taking away being Asian, it's hard because people constantly look down on you, people constantly underestimate you and people constantly like microaggress against you and I think it goes back to what I was saying about like for myself growing up in a place where I was not quote unquote a minority is it gave me the confidence of when I w- did go into spaces where I was a minority to not shirk away, right? Because I didn't have this ingrained sense of inferiority that because I'm Chinese, because I'm Asian, I have to automatically feel less than. And while, you know, while that chapter is full of conflict between her and her friend, Helen, um, the fact that they like constantly pushed each other was um like, I think the end result was like she was stronger for it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah uh definitely um and i also like this is this is a tangent but i also like how she mentioned bad english <laughs> and how she used it in her art and how um you know like in poetry broken english that you know her parents practice it becomes art and like you said it is a sense of self and um so I guess we can move on to, I guess, was it her last essay where she talks about Teresa Hakyung cha um, That was th- her sixth
0: one. Her last essay was about um, more like a conclusion. She talked about civil rights and y- Yuriko Chiyama. Uh, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. For me, um, I have never heard of Teresa Hakkyung-cha. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never heard of Dektae. And now I really want to read it because uh, it's... It sounds really interesting in terms of like art form uh it she cha writes about uh Korea and colonial history, about her heritage, and it's supposedly unapologetic and doesn't explain her heritage and background to white audience. It seems like a mashup of different mediums it has poetry in it and photography and um, I was not expecting. The violence of, um, of what happened to Teresa. Um, she was raped and killed in 1982, a week before her book was published. And I thought it was really interesting that Kathy mentioned how hard it was for her to find any information on Chaw's rape and how even Asian American scholars didn't mention her rape in studies because they didn't want her tragedy to loom over her work, and you know they remained quiet out of the sake of the family. and um and then she she interviewed the brother, and the brother was more than happy to to share what he knew about his sister. And um I thought it was a really interesting fact, not interesting fact. I thought it was a really interesting point in saying, if it was a white woman, who was like this avant-garde artist who was coming up in the art world and she was from the Upper West Side, that violence would have made like front page. But because Teresa was an Asian, uh, because Teresa was an Asian American woman, it uh, her rape and death was just quietly uh, put in the footnotes. And, um... And I think it does play into the... Uh, and I think her her race definitely plays into, into that fact, but also um, her being an Asian American woman, we are considered by society to be submissive and to be timid, and we are trained to be... And a lot of the times we are overlooked. So I thought that was like an interesting... Um, I thought that was just like an interesting essay overall. It was it was very unexpected.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I didn't expect this to turn into like a true crime story in the middle of, of this book, but it was really interesting for her because I think this is the chapter where she explores her minor feelings as a woman, right?
1: I mean, she mentioned Sylvia Plath, who is, you know, the icon of tragic young women artists. Right. And she does mention how, like, women, their achievements aren't really acknowledged until their death. Whereas, like, white guys, they don't really have to try. They can get away with it, and they will achieve success. The last essay talks about, um, you know, like, the social justice and civil movement civil rights movements and how asian americans became involved in that yeah and i think she mentions how like there hasn't been like this singular asian american movement since the term was coined
0: yeah uh in the 60s i mean that makes sense which i though. disagree with <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it makes sense in terms of like political activism because when that term was coined in the 60s a lot of people in college were second, third generation Asian Americans, right? People who have been there since the 1800s, the early 1900s, Um, a lot of Chinese and Japanese um, students who have been there for years. And, you know, the the 60s and 70s were the the beginning of the great migration of, you know, Asian scholars and high-skilled laborers to America. And so the Asian American community, in a sense, was diluted by new immigrants who who had different um, experiences with America, right. Who still, I guess, believed in the American dream that was sold to them as new immigrants. Whereas in contrast to the students who coined Asian America, who have been there for generations and have seen their families get like trampled on like people like Yuriko Chiyama, who gets profiled in this essay where she was someone who believed in the American dream until, until her interactions with um, like the civil rights movement gave her the vocabulary to realize, yeah, the stuff that happened to her and her family during internment was fucked up. I think the students who did the, um, uh, the the Third World Liberation Front movement, who were pushing for ethnic studies, who were protesting, they grew up with the vocabulary to describe their situation as minorities in America. Whereas the new immigrants, like people like our parents who came in the sixties and seventies, came without that without that vocabulary, and it wasn't until our generation where we started to learn that ourselves. Um, And so I think there's that gap in between the late sixties and now where, while there were still active Asian Americans in politics and in civil rights, it didn't become a movement again until I want to say like recently in the last like decade or so, you know?
1: Yeah, I I would say, I would probably say recently. Um, But I also think you have to take into the fact that Asian America is more diverse now. Um, You have people from Bangladesh, you have people who are Sri Lankan and, uh, and you have uh, people who are from West Asia and, um, and the term (laughs) Asian America doesn't really capture everyone. So I don't, I don't know if it's possible for us to have like that, same singular movement from the sixties, because you have to take into the fact that like it's um you know it it was during the time where the Vietnam War was fresh on people's mind, and Japanese internment was also fresh on uh the students' minds. You had people who lost their friends and relatives to the war, and it just kind of galvanized them to uh you know to fight for their rights, and now I just feel like because Asian America is so diverse and so divisive, uh, I'm not sure if that singular movement I mean, can happen again. But I disagree with with like saying that we haven't had a movement as powerful. I mean, again, as like Asian American then. is
0: it's not a cultural term; it's a political term, right? So, seen as like a descriptor of people, I think is not the right way to look at it it's a coalition of people right so in a sense like every single minority in this country should be aligned in wanting this country to fulfill its promise of being a land of equality and having like laws and policies that you know that seek to attain that goal right like you know um, a true democracy is hard um, which is why democratic institutions constantly find themselves on the precipice of like authoritarianism and oligarchy right um but the fact is asian americans as a movement it is more difficult now because there are so many so many more cultures wrapped up in that term but i mean seeing it as like asian americans are an alliance of people not a people like if we see it as an alliance that means we have to decide as as a coalition what are our goals and that might be different than our know, individual goals as like Chinese, Korean, Japanese, um, Vietnamese, Hmong, or whatever, Like right? You know, all those different communities might have their individual goals. But collectively, what are we looking to achieve?
1: To take down white supremacy <laughs> in our capitalist society. Yeah. <laughs> and I think
0: that's what Kathy is going for in this book is realizing that the system that we grew up in was rigged, right, against us. And so... The first step of realizing that there's a problem to solve is realizing the problem. And what Kathy does is provide you with the vocabulary to address those problems and at the very least understand the structures that we're under, right? The the rules of the game that we're playing.
1: Yeah, and also like bringing up the fact that by 2050, we will not be the minority anymore. And uh, we do have the power to take down white supremacy. And yeah. Yeah. And also she, like, mentions how because as we grow in, in terms of, like, population in this country and in terms of privilege and, it, and advancement in different industries, um, you know, like, the majority is threatened. And you've seen it in the 2016 election. and uh, you've seen, And we've seen recently, like, how dangerous that has become. And it is really crucial right now for, um, for, for Asian America to be a political movement, like you said. Yeah. Um, and I think Kathy really, uh, I think Kathy articulated really well in her book. Um, I think to wrap this up overall, I, I think this book will benefit a lot of people whether you are Asian American or an immigrant or if you're part of the majority um I think it is really educational and it really challenges you to question your own biases and um actually when I was reading this I was really scared because uh I was like how am I going to talk about this in our episode I really don't feel smart enough to <laughs> to discuss it um I think you did fine. <laughs> but uh, you say that, but I, I was just like, I don't I know. Mean, like there's a lot of scholarly uh, material in this book and I don't know if I could talk about it as uh, articulately as I I mean, should, we're not a
0: critical but... analysis podcast, so um, I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I, I think what this book does really well is articulate the frustrations of like those minor feelings right like this idea that we were sold a bill of goods that were never going to be delivered right um the closest we can get is like maybe adjacent to it but um the dream is always out of reach and i think you know the last chapter does pose that question right like when there is no clear majority in america right when we hit like 2050 where the minority becomes the majority which in other words means that there isn't a majority anymore. Where do Asians, where do we fit in? Right. I think we shouldn't be trying to take over the top spot of this game that doesn't work. We should be trying to figure out a whole new game, a whole new system that actually does work for people. Right. Because I think, um, I think it was the chapter where uh, she talks about language where she mentions that the racist divide in this country, like, it's real easy to blame it on race, but you can't have that without classism, right? And, like, American divisions have always been about classism. Racism towards Asians, even from the beginning, you know, during, like, when Chinese were excluded, were the powers at be directing class angst towards foreigners, right? Um, Yeah, so I think, people who read this book are much more are much more able to talk about minor feelings than people who don't, right? Like for those of us who were already aware, it gives us an, an additional, you know, term to reference. And for people who had no idea, it opens a whole new world to them, right? It's like taking your first Ameri- Asian American history class or like watching your first, you know, Asian American history documentary. Like these things that you always felt were bubbling underneath the surface that you always suspected were there. I think this book validates them and like gives them form.
1: Yeah, it's it's validation that you know you're not crazy. Uh you are be, you have been being gaslit <laughs> for years and uh now is the time to check your own biases and you know to do better and to know what's broken and uh where we need to go in the future. Yeah. Um yeah, so we've been talking for a very long time. So uh, we I think that's that's a good place to end the discussion. Yeah. Obviously, even though we are ending the discussion on the show, we would love to read people's thoughts on our Goodreads forums. Um, and just and if we've missed anything, we would love to we would love to hear. Yeah,
0: your please let us know. Um and I guess that is our discussion of Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong um yeah were thanks for thanks for um yeah it was a good read and definitely it's not too long so de- um so for those of you who have listened to our podcast without reading the book i hope we've interested you in going in and checking it out because we've only touched the surface of what kathy has to um has to say and this is a book that i think if you have a friend who you want to open their minds to to Asian American Discourse. Uh, it's a great book to recommend. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I actually read this book. Uh I read half of it in in an audiobook form. And Kathy actually reads the book. Uh like Kathy's actually the ma- narrator of the book. Yeah. So um I really recommend people to uh listen to the audiobook. It's only like five hours long. The book is pretty short. Um and also, I actually got the audiobook for free because I used our code to get
0: <laughs> <Nice>. it.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, if you guys are interested in getting uh, the audiobook for free, uh, just use our code uh for Libro FM. Yeah. And our book for October 2020 is Confessions by Kane Minato, uh, translated by Steven Snyder. And I wanted to pick a spooky book. For October, because of Halloween, it's about a teacher who lost her daughter and she's getting revenge on our students who are responsible for the death. <laughs> so it's a mi- so it's a mix of thriller, mystery, and horror. and uh, I'm really excited to read it. It's been on my TBR for a very long time.
0: Yeah. can't wait to read this spooky book uh, in this time of not existential dread. Thanks for that, Rira. <laughs>
1: diversity in our reading you know
0: and on that note that'll also do it for this episode of Books and Bulba thank you so much for sticking with us um, thank you, Riva, for discussing this book with me. And, you know, I think you did a good job. You sounded very, very smart.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. Uh, this was my fear when we started this book club. I, I was just like, I am not articulate or equipped to talk about Asian America. All right, so, um, I, all
0: right, so that yeah, means, so. dear listeners, it's your job to flood Twitter and our Goodreads forums with praise for Riva's discussion of this book because I think she deserve it.
1: <laughs> oh thank you well happy fourth yeah. year to us and uh, hopefully we will keep going I guess as long as <laughs> like, as
0: long as both of us are able and willing we'll keep going <laughs> yes,
1: yes all right
0: thanks so much for listening everyone we'll see you later All right, bye thanks for listening to books and boba this podcast was hosted by marvin yue and Ri rayu and edited and produced by marvin yue Follow the Book Club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at booksandboba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey Brian,
1: did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada's a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at
0: the pioneering films that have led us to today.